Welcome to the next episode of EY's Next Wave Banking in Asia Pacific podcast. As many listeners are well aware, sustainability is now high up on the list of every bank's strategic priorities. Investors, regulators and stakeholders across society are increasingly demanding greater transparency from financial institutions to enable sustainable finance in order to create long-term value. For today's episode, I'd like to introduce Claire Spall, our EY financial services partner based in Sydney, who will be leading today's conversation with two special guests. Over to you, Claire. Thanks for the introduction, Andrew. I'm glad to be part of this episode, which you can listen to in two instalments. Our special guests today are actually seated in Singapore. First, we have Eric Lim, Chief Sustainability Officer at United Overseas Bank, or UOB as many in the region will know it, and Wolfram Hidrich, EY Financial Services Risk Management Partner and our EY Asia-Pacific Sustainability Leader. In part one of this episode, we will explore why banks' leaders need to be better at articulating their sustainability vision and what to consider as you establish your governance structures and execute to achieve that vision. In part two, we will go deeper into the role that data is playing in achieving banks' sustainability goals, as well as the importance of building trust and avoiding issues such as greenwashing. So hello, Eric and Wolfram. Thank you for joining me today. Hi, Claire. Thanks for having me. Hi, Claire. I'm glad to be here. Wonderful. So there's a lot to cover in this very complex topic, so I think it's best that we break it down a little bit. So let's start at the very beginning. As banks are focusing on sustainability, how important is it to build the vision? And should that vision be confined to the institution itself or have a broader aspiration? And whilst you're thinking about the answer to that question, I'd also be really interested in your views on setting targets. And, and Eric, I'll pass to you first. When we think about sustainability, we know that a lot of our impact and the ability to have either positive or negative levers are related to our financing activities. And in that way, what we try to do is first and foremost, understand the key stakeholders we have within the ecosystem, what their needs and demands are, how that relate to the core of our business model and strategy, and then try to ensure that our sustainability strategy and our business strategy well aligned to be able to execute from that standpoint. A couple of the key stakeholders we found to be particularly influential or critical to address within banking, obviously, number one, our central bank regulators, understanding where they're going in terms of a national agenda, what they're hoping to be able to see from the banks that they regulate is important. A second one, definitely our customers who across various sectors are also experiencing the change of transforming towards a sustainable or green economy and understanding the opportunities, challenges, risks that they may be facing so that we can as best as possible serve those needs. So I would say that those are two of the major forces that we found to be most critical when we're thinking about our sustainability strategy within banking. Well, first of all, banks are part of the greater fabric of society. You have an economic role, right? And, and obviously need to answer to your shareholders for returns and to the regulator for the stability of the financial services industry. But there's also a broader social role that you play. And I think everything that you do on plan needs to keep in mind local necessities, right? In particular, when we're talking about climate change and decarbonization, that needs to come from a perspective or consideration of the local needs. Then it's particularly important in ASEAN or Greater APEC 
because of the different stages of development that the countries that we're in are at. So I think the regulators obviously see banks in a leading role and the catalyst for change and by putting regulations in place want you to act first and drag all, all the economy kicking and screaming into the low carbon economy. But ultimately, this needs to be a fair and just transition. So I think there's a broader group of stakeholders in terms of the general public that needs to be taken along as well. And they need to be incorporated in that strategy and, and plan as well. I think Wolfram brings up a really good point. When we think about sustainability, net zero or decarbonization within the context of a developing economy, this very critical concept that Wolfram's talked about, the just transition, is front and center for many of governments, real economy players, as well as financial institutions like us. And it very much comes down to defining what we mean by a just transition. And so when you look at that definition, you begin to very much to Wolfram's point, start to see the multiple interrelationship stakeholder groups you need to be addressing in terms of needs, demands, and wants. And it is quite a complicated piece of work, Wolfram, yes. It's a fundamental transformation of our economic system that we're talking about, right? And that, that will take quite a long time, huge effort. And the real risk is that we're doing something on one side too fast before we have the counterbalancing parts on the other. What I mean by that is, yes, we can talk about decommissioning coal power plants, but if we don't think about as well where the new jobs come from, right, we create more social instability and inequity that needs to be balanced. And that's both an opportunity but also a risk for financial institutions again. You're banking with both the, the corporates and the retail customers. So finding that right balance, I think, is going to be the biggest challenge for us all in the coming years. Great. And that vision that you've talked through there is so compelling in terms of the impact that it has so broadly across our economy. And Eric, you mentioned there net zero, and that's obviously a hot topic that is a phrase that lots of people will hear frequently. So perhaps we'll focus there next. Can you perhaps share your thoughts as to what net zero as a commitment really means for a financial institution? And in your view, how should these institutions evaluate and, and implement a strategy to help to achieve that ambition? So when we talk about net zero, I think it's important to frame the problem statement first as today our economic model in order to support everything we do, how we live, work, play, how we generate electricity, how we grow our food, how we transport ourselves, generates roughly 50 gigatons of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere every single year. So when we think about net zero, we can't get to net zero by 2050 by holding our breaths, by not eating food, by not transporting goods or people around the world. What Wolfram described, so the way we think about it, is going to be the largest industrial revolution known to man that will cost upwards of $100 trillion of investments and capex and business model transformations all to be executed within the next 28 years. And when you begin to contextualize it in that frame, you begin to see the huge amount of first build and opportunity in transforming the various sectors of the economy towards that net zero future. 
but also the tremendous risks of not navigating that transformation adroitly and with great skill and with great speed. So that's how, first and foremost, an FI thinks about net zero within the real economy. And we obviously care because we bank the real economy. So as a commercial bank, we look at all of our clients across all of these sectors. And our job is to help them get future ready, to be competitive, to be a winner in a net zero world, to be able to finance the transformations of their business models, or to be able to support the growth of some of these new economies. So we have published targets for six sectors within the wholesale bank and organized around two key ecosystems. The first ecosystem is energy, and the sectors covered there are power generation, oil and gas, as well as automotive, being a downstream user of energy. For the built environment, we do completed real estate, we do construction, as well as steel. The reason we pick these six sectors to set our net zero targets are, number one, they are very high emitting in terms of their greenhouse impact and therefore huge opportunity to be able to affect positive environmental as well as social change. The second thing is these are the portfolios that are material to our portfolio and therefore it is incumbent upon us to come up with the right go-to-market strategies engage our clients in the most constructive way possible to support them in their transformation. It is absolutely critical when we think about a bank and its net zero journey that we're not thinking of a cut and run approach. Because one of the things that's important for us to understand is you can achieve decarbonization by reshaping your financial portfolio away from hard to abate sectors towards the green economy, and that is important. But if you simply achieve net zero by cutting and running rather than leaning in and engaging with the hard-to-wait sectors, the real economy is not going to decarbonize, only your financial portfolio has. And that's not a win in the grand scheme of reducing 50 gigatons of greenhouse gases to zero. So that's kind of how we think about it. Well, at this point, I come with my uh, question about the politically charged topic here. You were speaking at a conference on a panel this week where I listened into your discussions. And at the very end, a member of the audience asked about providing financing to oil and gas industry. So providing transition finance to fossil fuel companies. And you could see how visibly the entire panel squirmed and, <laughs> and sat back and didn't really want to answer that question. And it's a politically charged question. Now, I'm not going to put you on the spot to answer this question, but maybe we can talk a little bit about why is it so politically sensitive? So, Wolfram, you're talking about, for example, coal, for example, oil and gas. And I think those two asset classes need to be thought about slightly differently also, right? Coal, obviously, is a major source of energy generation, especially within developing ASEAN, which is where we have our footprint. But it's very clear that the more coal you burn and the longer you burn that coal, the more you're going to take investments away from renewables, the less you're going to be effective in transitioning towards net zero for your economy. So coal is one of those asset classes where we've basically decided that we're not going to add any more clients. And even with the clients we have, they have to have a strong transition plan. 
we have a position on coal-fired power plants being we will not finance any new coal-fired power plants. And as the existing coal-fired power plant book comes up for refinancing, we will try to exit. Now, one of the interesting ideas you then bring up is a financing instrument that's come into the broader market, which is leaning in and actually financing the decommissioning of coal-fired power plants. And that becomes a very interesting and tricky conversation because at a time when a bank like UOB is trying to step away from coal and coal-fired power plants, there is actually a movement to finance coal-fired power plants from an acceleration of decommissioning approach. And the larger frame, those two thoughts are congruent. But when you get down to just the headlines, it looks horrific. It's a real reputational risk. Absolutely. So for a bank like a commercial bank trying to really do their best in putting forward the sustainability efforts here, to come under the reputational pressure and risk of being associated with financing coal-fired power plants, albeit for the right intent, that is the tricky space. So Wolfram, perhaps a question for you as well, in terms of what you're seeing around how banks best think around their current sustainability governance structures within groups. How much should be centralised versus decentralised, for example? Yeah, it's a very difficult question to answer because, first of all, given what we just discussed, this is a all-of-the-economy kind of effort. The same holds for a financial institution internally. It is an whole-of-organisation effort. That means you need to involve all stakeholders, right from the front line, from the business, to back office, to obviously sustainability departments, to the risk departments, finance departments, human resource departments. Everybody has a role to play. And it's actually the same for us here in EY. We have realized that whatever we do as a consultant in this business will have a sustainability angle in the future. So our core business there's almost nothing that does not relate to this topic and will have an element. And the same holds true for our clients. And that particular in organization that at times can be more siloed in their approaches with clearly defined responsibilities is a tough ask because now you have a new topic that cuts across everything that we do and you need to find ways of handling this together. And a siloed approach, separating responsibility very clearly, does not work. So Wolfram, I'd love to jump in here because I absolutely agree with you and Claire's question that how we set this up from a governance standpoint is actually critically important and how you set it up has implications. So let me share a bit of how we've done it in UOB and we see different approaches across different FIs. We decided to set up a brand new corporate function called the Corporate Sustainability Office that is led by a Chief Sustainability Officer Currently, that's me. And me, together with the function, we report directly in to the CEO. And that was important for us to set up straight from the get-go because we wanted the entire organization as well as our stakeholders outside the organization to understand that sustainability was front and center and fundamental to everything we do. The second thing that we did was we then set up what we call a very strong hub and spoke engagement model where everything that then happens within the business as well as the key corporate functions, there is a strong hub and spoke partnership between the central office, 
as well as uh, each of the business units or corporate functions. And that's how we ensure that across the organization, sustainability is understood, integrated, actioned, and being held as fundamental to how business units and corporate functions go about their BAU. But one of the things I then realized, now reflecting back, we were very lucky because we had this massive level of alignment all the way from the board to CEO, the senior team, into then the sustainability team, then flowing out to the organization. And to our listeners on this podcast, just my two cents worth. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more, particularly in, I would say, smaller institutions, so the mid-sized and smaller institutions that we have here in the region. That might not always be the case right now. Particularly here in the region, we still have many financial institutions with a strong investor base that have a single large investors that have a big interest, traditional interest in that institution and a big say on the board. And then it becomes even more important to get everybody on board and on that right target. And I've been involved in discussions on boards where even that fundamental question around net zero and what do we publicly commit to? When do we commit to that? Do we have to commit to that? Can we avoid to commit or do we have to do it sooner rather than later? It's not aligned at all, right? There's no alignment at all on that. And if you start from that position, it's really hard to convince the entire organization that you're on a certain path. So I'd completely agree. The tone from the top needs to be very consistent, very clear, and needs to come from the board, not just from senior management. Thank you for listening to part one of this conversation. We look forward to you joining us for part two. You've listened to the EY Next Wave Banking in Asia Pacific podcast. To learn more about EY, our people, and our latest thinking, visit us at ey.com forward slash banking. If you would like to have a further conversation on what you've just heard, or learn more about joining our team at EY, please contact us via the details found in the description. If you like this episode, please leave a review to help us bring you more insightful and relevant content. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen.